Captain Talk. The Sin Talkers around the table today discuss the multiculturalisms. We'll think about the interpretation, representation, and understanding of self in the other and others' culture, societies, ethics, and histories. We'll dip into concepts from history, anthropology, culture studies, philosophy, maybe science fiction, political theory, and more. Is it possible to have a meta theory for a culture to understand all others? What are the different modes of translation and acculturation? Is there a difference between interpreting and understanding the other? And we might also wonder if we have a robust enough theoretical toolkit to understand another sentient life form um, extraterrestrially, if there is one. We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers around the table today. Professor Vivek Dhareshwar who is a theorist thinking about cultural differences and is trying to reconceptualize the human sciences. He is a scholar in residence at Shishti School of Design in Bangalore. Professor Rashmi Doreswamy, who is a professor in Academy of International Studies in Jamia Millia Islamia in Delhi and is particularly interested in Eurasia. and Professor Shireen Ratnagar, who is an archaeologist interested in culture, society, and polity. She's based out of Bombay. Vivek, maybe we set the ball rolling with you um, to understand in a very general way how one can characterize culture. And um, if there are many cultures, why is it they don't why is it that only one or very few interpret the other? And, uh, you know, we touched upon this notion of interpreting and, and understanding. How can one get one's arms around that? So maybe we just set the ball rolling and we'll take it from there. Yeah, sure. Uh, in some ways, the most serious question that we've inherited uh, in social sciences in India is really... Uh, the kind of theories that we've had, mm -hmm. uh, they've all come from one place. I mean, it's actually Europe that has produced theories about the rest of the world. Such as what? Whether it's <laughs> economic theories, political theories, you know, we... Sure. Yeah. And history, for example. Sure. Know, it's, it's, uh, so in that sense, in a non-trivial sense of the word, mm -hmm. one culture has given description of other cultures. In Circumstances that was not necessarily the most ideal and so on, you know, they were the colonizers too. Mm -hmm. But we need to keep that part separate in uh, pursuing this question about what are the consequences of thinking about cultural difference. Mm -hmm. Now, often one here tends to say that it depends on what you mean by culture. Mm -hmm. But this is where, you know, the we need to take the theory building aspect very seriously. It's not a matter of uh, definition, what you or I define, because you can define anything in any way. Uh, but actually building a, a theory means actually trying to figure out something about what could be 
cultural difference and not that in some sense you want to think about it as you know, uh, time-space in 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 uh, post-Einsteinian world. It's one word. Mm-hmm. Similarly, space not time. culture and difference. You know that that it's it's uh, uh, it's cultural difference that's prior, right? So that's uh, very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if that is how you begin, then what are the ways in which you can think about cultures? One hypothesis that I'm following, mm-hmm. uh, which is. Uh, borrowed from the work of the thinker that I mentioned earlier to you in conversation, that's Malayangadha, right? Mm-hmm. Is that cultures are configurations of learning. See, this is a term of art. That is, you want to see it as, you know, a, a configuration of learning. Mm-hmm. That is, if you want to talk about what, how to understand a culture, you want to try and understand what configuration of learning emerged from a particular culture, right? So, in some sense, now if you look back on the... And why do you use the word learning, I'll come come to that. Sure. Uh, 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 that 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 is because you want to you you are trying to conceptualize a knowledge element, mm-hmm. right? When you say why do you want to study another culture, you want to study a culture f- to gain knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So a, if if the hypothesis is that the config a culture actually is cognitively understandable because there is a configuration of learning that you can actually reconstruct. Yeah, that's it's, you know that's a teachable and learnable, as it were, right? Mm-hmm. So then, when you look at the, uh, now with this idea, the uh, the colonial encounter, if you like, where you know one culture came and dominated another culture, but also gave a description of other cultures. Now, one of the problems that we inherit in the in the post-colonial or you know uh, uh, post-independence world is. We have practically inherited the descriptions. We, we've not actually done anything more with the, the, the description, or rather we embroidered it, but we've not actually built a theory about where the description came from. What is the relationship between the culture that gave the description? Right? Rather, rather, we've been looking at the object of description and the description. Mm-hmm. Now, if you take a work like, say, Edward Said's Orientalism, the interesting part is that Orientalism is nothing but the description that one culture gave of another culture. Right. Now, why do we find it problematic? Not simply because one culture gave description of another culture, mm-hmm. but it must be because we're not able to figure out why this sounds so strange, this description, that it actually points to not the object of the description, but actually the subject of subject who gave the description. So that part has really not been problematized or thought about. Mm-hmm. So when I say, when you reconceptualize uh, human sciences or uh, build a meta-theory of Western theories, because, you know, strictly speaking, they're not theories. They're, they're just descriptions. Theories in the sense that theories should really make sense of your experience. But these descriptions did not make sense of our experience. That's why we find Orientalist descriptions problematic, not because it is given by someone else. Not because they're Western, but because, not because they're, they're not theories. They're not theories, precisely yeah. the point. Mm-hmm. That's, otherwise, mm-hmm. if you take the... From a point of view, you get go misleadingly in the direction of nativism, and we want our own description. That sort of a thing. Sure. It's not. It's not a yearning or a cry for nativism. Having, might not be a theory either. So. Yeah, theory either. So, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. The, here the more, the cognitive task is precisely to show that those are not theories, but in fact they can be used for building uh, theories. That's why the you know meta theory becomes a necessary step in the further dis, you know, reconceptualization of the human sciences. Because that's the only way you can try to figure out why a culture gave a certain kind of description of another culture. Why, for example, Europe compulsively 
you know, uh, found that it has to look at religion, find religion in, in every culture. It was not an empirical finding. Yeah. It, it, they, they, they nothing, you know, it's not like they went and did some empirical work and they just assumed that every culture has to have a religion, a religion which is common sense now. We think that that is indeed the case. That, but that every may culture, not exist. Yeah. We're not, we're not actually figured out how to even go about finding whether, <laughs> whether a culture has a, has a religion or not. We sort of tritely always say that, yeah, well, you know, the great culture, that culture has a great religion. In fact, we don't even know what does it mean to say about say religion of Greeks or religion of of, of Romans? Right. Mm. We assume that right. there is some entity, but we don't know what that entity is. We don't know how to talk about it. So this is one example of of the kind of a description. That I think we there are have. lots of interesting ideas there, and we'll explore them as we go along. Shirin, why don't we move to the world of history? And you know, I think uh, Vivek touched upon very briefly about on the concept of the colonial contact, as it were. And you obviously thought of history. With a much longer arc, and uh, yeah. how 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 does this process of any kind of cultural contact actually happen, and how how smooth and non-smooth is that, Before and how difficult I is that? Touch on that. Mm. I wanted to ask Vivek something mm -hmm. that we are saying one culture interprets others, but is Europe one culture, or is it? a robust civilization with many, many different cultures and that is what makes it robust. And have the Orientalists somehow confused Egypt, Palestine mm -hmm. with India, Bengal? Mm -hmm. And is that where the confusion maybe began? In other words, should we here in this room start to break up culture? into diverse units, will this make us see the robustness in them? Yeah. Actually, that, that's, that's very helpful to uh, uh, refocus uh, that why, you know, in one way you, go, you do get misled if you start saying that. So is the distinction between culture and civilization? Yes, may that's I say it. that? Mm. Also, now I am the professor sure. uh, behind <laughs> the uh, teacher's desk that... We talk about cultures from the beginning. Students are always very confused. Mm -hmm. But tell me, when did people begin to be cultured? So we go back to the anthropological textbook, which says mm -hmm. cultures are socially transmitted mm -hmm. systems of learned behavior. Right. All right. So every human society... I used to say, if you can recognize the tools as tools, there would be language with them. There would be somebody teaching someone. There would be someone imitating someone. We are in the presence of a culture. Right. Civilization will be a much more overarching system. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there will be our culture, which intrudes and looks on a past culture and talks about Arabian civilization, Indian civilization, or the civilization of Mesopotamia. So what, what, what is Meaning a civilization? Meaning that there are numerous little cultures, local systems, mm -hmm. but which are held together by an overarching system of writing. Of writing. Language. Uh -huh. A technology which spreads. Uh-huh. 
and uh, ultimately polity. As uh, Rashmi said over lunch, that uh, the systems of building of the Harappan that she has been alerted to obviously speak for a ruling domain, somebody to direct the people to build in a certain way. Mm. And all that then makes us think that if we've got a civilization here, the people would not have been running around naked. Yeah. They would have been dressed. Yeah. They would have had a high art. They would have had a philosophy. And then we start putting our own little baggage into it. I don't know to what extent the other add-ons are true or not. Hmm. 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 That's interesting. That's interesting. And how does this process happen? I mean, clearly one doesn't start. The a priori is not the civilization. The a priori is some kind of a culture which gradually evolves and some cultures get together. And how does the Harappan civilization come to be? Obviously, where does it start? Where does the Mesopotamian civilization start? They start in village economies, mm -hmm. in little tribal uh, societies. Mm -hmm. Tribes can expand. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the tribes which are not settled, which are nomadic, mm -hmm. provide the glue between settled communities. Mm -hmm. And then they develop centers of worship, like the Mesopotamian temples, mm -hmm. which begin to attract a lot of people. And I think I know why you're asking this question, because what happens in the very first urban civilization of the world mm -hmm in Mesopotamia mm -hmm. is that we've got evidence of the previous period and the urban period. Mm -hmm. The previous period has many small dispersed villages. Mm -hmm. In the urban period, we know that many of these were deserted. There is no longer any occupation of the urban period. And it is a very reasonable inference, therefore, that people were induced to or forced to or wanted to come and live together in the shelter of this great temple. So again, we are saying we assume religion. Right. I think, uh, you know, you're touching upon the issue of nomads and maybe that's mm. a good place to go to Rashmi on um, and mm. the flatlands and the Eurasian region. Um, you know, obviously, one doesn't think of Eurasia as being the center of the world, at least in, in, in most discourses. And when you think of the multicultural contact and, you know, you're making this distinction between, I think you made this interesting point about the word multi getting added to culture. So maybe why don't we start with that? And how would you put the Eurasian region uh, in this context? Yeah, um, actually, uh, since you told me uh, about this topic, uh, I thought a lot about it. And um, it struck me that the moment we add the word multi mm -hmm. to uh, culture, we are really talking about not just several cultures, but we are also talking of um, uh, cultures, uh, which some of which may be dominant, some of which may not be. I think Vivek has already indicated that. And uh, in fact, um, the Eurasian space, um, has, uh, through the centuries, uh, provided alternative models of culture, of civilizations. Um, and uh, this is, uh, as uh, Shireen also pointed out just now, this is also one of the spaces where you have nomadic as well as sedentary uh, populations. And... Um, 
this is an area, this is a space where uh, you've had the Silk Road. Mm -hmm. uh, the Silk Road was um, not just one road, but several routes that stretched from China right up to the Mediterranean. And uh, in fact, one can categorize it as uh, a pre-modern globalization in a way, because uh, it's not just trade that happened on this route, uh, but also um, ideas, religions um, passed through this route, uh, and also uh, empires were made and unmade, huge what empires. What drives that, Rashmi? And why, why, why go thousands of miles away? What drives that? What, I mean, where, I mean, do the, I mean, clearly we were all nomads several thousands of years ago, and do some of the nomads end up becoming sedentary? Or yes, how does they it do. Go? At, uh, mm -hmm. at the end of long historical processes, they do. Uh, what drives people? The, uh, I think, there, again, the question of cultural difference, which came up uh, a few minutes ago, I think that um, here I would go to a philosopher whose work I admire uh, a lot, uh, Mikhail Mikhailovich Bakhtin uh, from the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And he is a person who, right at the beginning of the 20s, um, he... Um, starts uh, saying that it is only through the other that we can know ourselves. Now, this is a right. very uh, uh, different kind of formulation from I think, therefore I am. There is a sense of self-sufficiency in that statement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but here is a man, and this, of course, the, the basis for such a statement happens, right? you know, it's built up through the 19th century with um, a whole lot of new theories about society, um, Karl Marx, Engels, uh, about, uh, you know, the human mind, Freud, as well as about language. Uh, we are looking at uh, de Saussure. Uh, so a lot of things are happening. And um, at the beginning of the 20th century, you have Bakhtin saying, well, there is no way. In fact, he goes to, he makes the extreme statement of monologue is death. Uh, and dialogue is the only way that life can continue. And that it is only through the other that I can know so myself. So it's a survival instinct in some Absolutely. ways. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And he makes, uh, I mean, he has a whole theory of language, but that by extension is also a theory of culture. Mm -hmm. And he makes this very interesting statement that uh, language is imbibed on the axis of the internally convinced word and the word of the father. And in fact, this later on becomes the uh, basis of his uh, theory of the carnival, because what is the carnival but the internally familiar word, the, the, the world that uh, you have no distance with, that you can laugh with, yeah. um, that you can subvert. But the word of the father is the a word of authority, and you don't uh, mess with that. Uh, easily. Uh, so um, he also talks of the mirror image. And this is also very interesting because he says um, uh, the mirror image is uh, when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm also looking at a possible evaluation of me by another and my own reaction to that uh, uh, evaluation. So, the so there's a kind process, of try. Yeah. yeah, there's a, a very layered kind of look that we give ourselves uh, in the mirror, which actually doesn't exist in uh, real life. Um, the other point that he makes is is also an interesting one for our present discussion, that of borders. Um, he says there is no internal sovereign th territory, and it is through the border that, again, I can know the other. Uh, so these are very interesting um, concepts of mm. otherness mm. Um, that uh, mm. Bakhtin proposed. And in fact, what is interesting also for me is to uh, look at uh, several texts through the 20th century. And uh, here we have, um, uh, for example, uh, we have Samuel Huntington and 
the clash of civilizations. Um, apart from Bakhtin, I mean, there are other people, and Huntington is one of them. And uh, his is a text that I would call a text of extreme anxiety. Uh, because um, the whole um, idea was that of the two superpowers, if one superpower falls, then uh, the the kind of uh, baton is passed to the remaining superpower. And uh, history didn't play out that way. And uh, there was a lot of fragmentation. Uh, there were a lot of uh, people who um, staked claim uh, to other uh, uh, you know, uh, so when, seats when of a power. Civilization yes, and in fact, this is mm. what he says. He says that uh, this is a the post Cold War world is a multipolar world, but it's also a multi civilizational world. So that mm. there's this fear of many civilizations, which are mm. not all of which are not Western, not modern according to the Western format, mm. and which are not uh, something that uh, he's comfortable with. And parallel to that, of course, we have uh, the text of Derrida on hospitality. Mm. Uh, uh, and uh, where Derrida is again going into, uh, I mean, it's in a completely contrast uh, text, uh, contrastive text to say Huntington's, where Derrida is talking of the foreigner. Uh, as we'll the, come to that, Rashmi. I yeah, think why don't okay. we explore this? So even when a civilization devolves, the cultures remain. Would that be fair to say, Shireen? Um, can we go from? Is it correct to go from culture to ethnicity? Uh -huh. How do I perceive myself? Uh -huh. Now, in a very simple way, the anthropologist Frederick Barth had said, I perceive my ethnicity only when I st stand at its border. Yes. When I say that I am uh, an Indian or not French, or I am a Parsi and not Hindu, or I am a such and such kind so the of Parsi is and negative. not it's a negative definition. When you not, no, not necessarily. It depends on what I'm looking at about myself. In relation to the other. In some places, I'm Indian. In some places, I'm a female. Yeah. <laughs> in some places, I'm Maharashtrian when I go to Delhi. In <laughs> Mumbai, I am a Parsi when I want to stone the Bhika Beram Kua. Things like that. That is the whole point. Right, right. Of how things can change. And I don't know, Vivek, is it time to bring in ethnicity? Because look at the horrible harm that the Bosnia, Croatia, that entire struggle in which the West got involved, look at the harm it did to people's approaches to identity. Yeah. Yeah. And some people tell me that this was deliberately engineered. Yeah, <laughs> But for that, I think we may need to go back to understand cultural difference for the, for the following reason, that even ethnicity is not, you know, even if you want to accept it as a sort of neutral term, to, which picks out something about how individuals relate to themselves, right? The way identities are individuated are very different in different cultures, right? For example, I would argue that in India, language was never... Uh, 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 individuating uh, uh, identity-wise, you know, whereas now when you see Canada, Tamil, Tamilness, and so on, it, it is really something that is your inherited from the uh, colonial world. That's learned. That, that, yeah, mm. it's it's, it's uh, so there is a so even if we want to talk about different ways in which people construct their relationality to others, 
cultural difference would, I think, play a very important role in trying to figure that out. Because you, you don't want to uniformly say that for everyone, you know, language is a marker of ethnicity. For everyone, it is not. So when you so, say cultural difference, Vivek, yeah. what are the markers? Well, we need to ask. That's why it's, it's not a prior question. It's, it's, right. it's what you want to investigate. Hmm. So the, to come back to the earlier question, to which uh, Shereen posed a question to me about, let's break up culture rather than, you know. Uh, but see, here, when I say we need to postulate, we need to understand culture we need to, mm -hmm. through a process of trying to figure out why certain kind of description about India was given. Here's a puzzle. Okay, this is what we need to solve in some sense. That is, no matter which description you pick out, and that's, the, that's to the credit of Edward Saiz to uh, point out, to have pointed out that, look, people who are specially and very different, correct. Different Priests, people who came from traders. very different uh, places, very different time, gave a same kind of description of for India. Now, they were, so there's a strange kind of, if you like, intertextuality. Uh, what he calls niche togetherness of this discourse, which is not that they were sharing it necessarily. That's a very interesting right? question. So mm -hmm. that's where you need to ask a question, where did that come from? That's What's why I said answer? the question is about, question is, it has to be about culture. Yeah. Culture, that is, we need to investigate, not simply define it away as, you know, a transmission of symbols or whatever. You need to begin to understand what is it. So it, your question is valid. That is, do you want to construct a, 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 a you know, where, where, is, where is this entity? How do you demarcate it? But that's precisely the question of investigation. So when, for example, West describes itself as, for example, you mm -hmm. know, Greek and, uh, and, and Roman, Greek but that Roman. is, one, one wants to say that actually if you investigate, when this description begins to emerge, uh -huh. you realize that it's actually the Christian West. It's not really, there is a break between the Christian West and, and the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Greek world. The Aristotelian thinking, for example, is completely alien to, to the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Christian thinkers. Yeah. You may get Aquinas re reinterpreting uh, 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 Aristotle, but that's not Aristotle. It is, <laughs> it is Aquinas moralizing uh, uh, Aristotle. Aristotle's ethics is completely alien to the thinking of, of, of Christian morality. How is it that? In the same way that they found, you know, in India, when they came to India, they said it's an immor immoral culture. Yeah. Of course, we uh, we now you know assume that that is to be true. But yeah. you know, the question for us is, why did they find? What is it they were saliencing? That is, what is in the framework? What is the cognitive framework that that they saw and say this is missing here? Why? Wh what? How do you understand that saliencing? Right. So that is a question about really trying to understand culture as a configuration of learning. What is it that, that made them see, for example, you know, for a long time, when until, say, about in the 1950s, when uh, moral philosophers looked at Greek philosophy, Western world, they always found that moral concepts are absent in Homer. You know, yeah. Bernard Williams has this wonderful book called Shame and Necessity, mm. where he shows that, look, they said that, you know, central moral concepts are absent in, 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 the, in, in, uh, in Homer. Mm. So what does it they mean there? What is, what is morality to them? Because obviously, if you look at the Greek world, ethics has been theorized beautifully. I mean, Nicomachean ethics is really Correct. an example of, the foundation of, uh, of it. Yeah. Mm. So that is, when I say cultural difference, I mean this sort of thing. What is the domain that they were thinking of as a moral domain, which they found missing both in their own so-called past and in another culture that, 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 that they encountered? 
you could ask similar questions about polity or similar questions about the other domains too. So even marking out a domain is actually a question of cultural difference. And when you say difference, I think it's easier to get, get one's arms around what's missing. Mm. But what about the novel? What about the additional? You know what I mean? So when you talk about the cultural contact... Um, you mean what, what positive markers that there are? Uh, so I think, you know, for example, in this context, if, if a culture A were to come into contact with culture mm-hmm. B, a culture A recognizes something as being missing there, and mm-hmm. that is, in a way, the cultural deference that they recognize or experience. Or not experience. Or not, or experience. not able to. Or uh, not experience. Uh, yeah. See, one of the puzzles is that in philosophy, you say that, you know, like this is Davidson's famous theory of interpretation. Mm-hmm. The only way that you 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 uh, you make sense of the other culture is actually by uh, uh, attributing the same sense of rationality that you yourself have, right? Otherwise, and the that, only way. Yeah, only way. That's that's a Davidson's theory of uh, radical interpretation. Mm. So uh, now, interestingly enough, if you look at the colonial encounter, you had translation. Right, you had interpretation, but you can claim there was no understanding. So, in some sense, then you had asked the further question: What more do you need, other than t- translation interpretation, for understanding another culture? Which what kind of links to the point Rashmi was making about dialogue and monologue? Other, yeah, so, even the, this entire exercise was it a monologue or a dialogue? But even if it was a, uh, it could have been a dialogue. You need mm-hmm. to ask the question because, in some sense, you could construe getting native interpreters, native informers as actually a process of dialogue, right? Even that was not sufficient to get, get an understanding, right? So in some way, you are in, you are in the same situation as, if you like, in, in, in the domain of scientific theories. Uh-huh. You know, if you have only one theory, it's never sufficient for you to figure out whether it's getting it right or not. You right. only actually have a competing theories before you can figure out whether you're getting something right. right. So what we have now is the situation, there's only one, as it were, you know, a theory. So only when you have a rival theories begin to build a, 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 a theorization of a domain, then you can actually begin to say. So it's not so much what is missing or what is positive, uh-huh. but coming to the idea of how do we demarcate a different domain, right? For uh-huh. example, I give this example of uh, ethnicity, uh-huh. that if, say, language is not a marker of ethnicity, as, for example, it has been in Europe, uh, uh-huh. uh, do you even talk about this, you know, ethnicity in the same sense in, 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 in an Indian context? Right, right, right. Uh, right. So what would social science need uh, uh, to rethink uh, questions of identity, Right. Not right. identity in the sense of identity politics identity, but in the sense in which people go about constructing, you know, a sense of past, sense of Id- continuity for themselves. It's very interesting, Shireen. How has this sense of identity and the notion of ident- identity been a constant over the centuries? You know I what I mean. I think so, but it hasn't ever been played on by people. Uh-huh. So it hasn't ever created ruckus. I was thinking uh, this morning, and I scribbled it somewhere. <laughs> You have at one stage in 1480 BC. 1480 BC. Three very important world powers. Uh Say 1480 onwards into 1300. Uh Hmm? There is the Hittites in Anatolia. Uh There is the Egyptian pharaoh. And there is the king of Babylon. Uh Now when there is diplomatic correspondence between them, it is all in the language of Babylon. And it is written by scribes 
who are the western semites who are the southern semites of babylon right and they are writing letters to the pharaoh who speaks a completely different language at home whose edicts are in egyptian which it does not belong to this branch semitic branch but who gives some kind of credence to the antiquity of akkadian to its richness to its great uh, i don't know what it's also the literary motifs of the akkadian language that spread and nowhere do you see any hint that people resent it of course scribes would have carried it with them uh-huh. learned men would have left babylon and traveled uh-huh. settled at a small chota mota court uh-huh. <laughs> and spread something taught people to write but um nowadays i'm sorry to go to this but uh, in my profession in archaeology i remember my professor sankalia had a little theory completely uh-huh. inconsequential theory uh-huh. that a certain kind of spout in western maharashtrian pottery uh-huh. was something that came from iran because that was the time when the indo aryans migrated and there were people who gave their lives to disprove him <laughs> because they were insulted how could anything come to the great indian civilization from somewhere else it is that degree of resistance to outside it frightens me yeah sure 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 i think uh, how how does uh, even even that initial contact is th- very theory laden isn't it i mean is, what, i think i think you know what the tough question when we when, when things about it naively is that when the first contact happens between two cultures say for the lack of a better word and not civilization how does that happen at all in a very primal kind of way because you don't share a language it's quite likely that you have very different cultures you don't share the same but somebody does begin to how slow is that process speak a pidgin mm-hmm. that means a combination of two different languages in contact mm-hmm. sometimes what happens is what happened in the greek world mm-hmm. where you have somebody is the guest friend of somebody else i go to your island and i want to cut wood i cannot cut wood to take back home but if you are my sponsor and my patron and i eat at your house then he takes me to the forest and says it's okay this person will cut the wood he's not a danger to us but it's a very so slow process so there's a guest process. friendship hmm? but it's a very slow process very slow how slow so when you talk about the generations Acadians. generations mm-hmm. and all that early exchange is start stop start stop nothing is a continuous flow all this uh, international diplomatic correspondence that we call it in today's language it all came to an end in two three generations right right and why does it have this stop start stop characteristic i mean obviously why does it have that start stop characteristic why is it not a continuum i don't know lack of institutions maybe maybe the elite itself is not a continuing one mm-hmm. which has an interest in keeping things going or maybe they just dissolve i know that the hittite princess married the egyptian pharaoh mm-hmm. and then the thing is we never find anything of her culture in egyptian archaeology i don't know 
<laughs> People did marry across, you know, an enormous amount. Right. We never right. find them. Right. And and whenever a contact of this nature, is there always a host culture? There is. There has it? to be. If you are not safe with the host culture, if they do not guarantee you safety, mm. then you'll be murdered. Mm. Mm. And there's you'll some... You'll be kept at the... Mm. 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 That's very interesting. That's very interesting. And when we talk about culture, obviously the different concepts circumscribing it, right? In today's context, we kind of think of it parallel with the notion of a nation. So when we think of the nations, we've spoken about ethnicity, we've spoken about languages. Are there other ways of cultures getting circumscribed, Rashmi? Yes. Uh, in fact, um, uh, I would say in response to what Shireen said just now that I am personally struck mm-hmm. by the amount of um, interaction there was in amongst cultures Mm -hmm. uh, through the millennia uh, when they obviously did not have the kind of communication systems we have today. Um, I think that uh, cultures met each other uh, through massive movements of people which occurred through conquests, uh, the pre-modern empires, then the colonial conquests and empires, uh, then the post-colonial societies. Um, And um, in... um, You see, I think there are two theories that really come up in the 20th century about uh, this whole business of different cultures meeting each other Uh and also of in some way uh, controlling uh, the asymmetries or at least in in some way dealing with the asymmetries of uh, these encounters. And uh, one is, of course, that of multiculturalism, which comes up um, in settler uh, societies. Mm -hmm. That is where there were already the indigenous people Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had one set of the European settlers coming in. Uh, sometimes there was also slave trade. Uh, the slaves come in. And then there are other waves of migration happening from Asia, Africa, Latin America, and so on. And uh, in fact, it's very interesting that, for example, a place like Australia um, had the white, white Australia policy for uh, from the beginning of uh, the 20th century till about the 70s, <laughs> uh, where uh, the only people who were allowed to come in were uh, white people, basically uh, Britishers, and then maybe some Europeans. But the neighboring countries, uh, the countries that neighbored uh, Australia uh, found it uh, difficult to get into Australia. So You mean Southeast Asia? Yes, so mm. multiculturalism then comes up in the 70s in a big way in Australia. So multiculturalism Mm. is uh, uh, at the the level of government policy and state policy uh, comes up in the settler uh, societies. But, uh, I mean, whether we look at America and the melting bowl uh, pot and the salad bowl models, you know, Mm. or Canada. Mm. But um, I think that the socialist... uh, countries came up with another model uh, because they too were actually multicultural. I mean, they had several, uh, if you look again at the Eurasian space, there are many languages, many uh, uh, religions, many um, ethnicities, many races. And uh, so um, you have um, the concept of multinationalism. So there's a a kind of difference between the nation and the ethne. If we look at the nation as uh, a cultural community that is bounded by territory and the ethne as a cultural community that is not bounded by territory, maybe, uh, which is dispersed or displaced or whatever. That is, um, So uh, you had this theory of multinationalism. And uh, after the revolution in the Soviet Union, for example, from 1924 to 36, uh, they have the Soviet national delimitation policy by where, whereby they actually create states 
um, according to nationalities. Um, and they create the federated, you know, the uh, Union of Soviet Socialist uh, Republics, yeah, mm. the USSR. Um, and in fact, um, again, to go back to Derrida, he has a very interesting comment. He says it's the only country in the world, he had visited USSR and he uh, comes back and writes that uh, where uh, you have the name of a country which is not tied to any titular community or any land or anything. It's a completely made up name, the Soviet Union. Uh, so, um, so this was so multinationalism, multiculturalism. These were the two ways in which uh, I think this whole uh, business of the meeting of cultures and uh, you know dealing with the majorities and the minorities and dealing with everybody. Uh, these were two different approaches that came up in the 20th century. Can I ask you something, some information? Do you think? Much of this would be due to the fact that in Eurasia there were pastoral nomads and once the pastoral nomads got on the backs of horses or bred horses, their mobility was huge and their horses needed ever new pastures to graze. This is why we say this is how the Indo-Aryans came to India. But, you know, you were talking about lack of territory and nation, a culture of certain dominant pastoral nomad groups. Could this have been bound into the age-old history of this area? Um, I think that, as I said, I think this is, uh, you know, uh, we've been talking of how uh, the West has actually written all the narratives and made itself the hero of all these narratives. And if we look at the Eurasian space, mm. um, uh, there is so much uh, of alternative uh, narratives uh, that are available. Such as what, and, uh, well, Yeah, I spoke of the Silk Road earlier, mm -hmm. um, and that is a big narrative. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I would now like to refer to, I mean, because it's not just uh, about um, no Nomads and horses, of course it is that as well. And the great empires, one of the biggest empires the world has seen was that of Genghis Khan, Correct. Uh, the Mongol, uh, Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, it gave a lot to uh, uh, Eurasia, but not that for the moment. Um, I would say that before the European Renaissance, mm -hmm. there was actually an Asian Renaissance and we never speak about it. Mm -hmm. And these are actually mm -hmm. the alternative histories that we have to write and not the kind of uh, crude and regressive debates that we are on unfortunately seeing for the past several years um, over history writing. Um, the Asian Renaissance happens from 750 to 1150. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a time, and again, I am struck by, if we say that the so Renaissance is then, about uh, going back and uh, looking at classical texts, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm just giving the very sure, uh, very sure. brief uh, definition of uh, sure. what the European Renaissance is defined as. Um, the innovations, a secular um, outlook, yeah, uh, questioning of old um, principles and uh, theories. All this is happening, polymaths, yeah. Yeah. All this is happening in this period uh, that I would like to call the Asian Renaissance. And uh, you have people, you have uh, the Arabic, uh, you know, the uh, takeover. Islam enters Central Asia at this time, but it is a time when the older religions are very much there, right from shamanism to uh, Zoroastrianism to uh, Nestorian Christianity. Everything is there, even Buddhism. Right. And uh, all this is mixed up. And this is what I mean, that this is a place of such great hybridity. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and, and such great richness and so many uh, civilizational uh, innovations and you know theories I mean which which are there so you have uh, even somebody like Omar Khayyam we know him for his Rubaiyat yeah. but he was also a very great mathematician I don't yeah. know how many people know that yeah. uh, you have any number of people who are philosophers but who are also writing on statecraft or writing on music Al Farabi all three he was writing on all so of the it. So the polymaths there. What went missing? So, Why no, is it not so, known? And they're traveling all the time. I mean, uh -huh. the amount of mobility uh, is again very, I mean, if they all they had were horses and caravans and camels, I don't know um, the kind of mobility there is at that time. Um, so this renaissance, and they had fantastic libraries. Uh, in Samarkand, Bukhara, Merv, you know, Balk, there are big libraries. And um, so, th and there is Sufism also, which is coming into being. So there is also, you know, if we say Protestant uh, Reformation and all that in, in the case of the European Renaissance. So there's a lot happening out here. And uh, what happens is that a lot of it um, is also translated. What would again be of interest to you probably is the fact that mm. the Greek texts uh, don't go directly, the Greek philosophers don't go directly from Greek into Latin and Europe. No, no. they come all the way into the Middle East, the, the area that we call, yeah, the, the West Asia. And from there, they're translated back into Latin. And that's, and in fact, the Renaissance, the, the rediscovery of old classics uh, that is, was part of the European Renaissance happens a lot due to this. And also the fact that the uh, uh, Arabs had come into, through the Mediterranean, all, all the way also up to uh, Spain, uh, you know, so Right. There is a huge mixing going on. And in fact, one of the people who has talked of this, um, uh, she takes up, um, I mean, she goes into a debate with uh, uh, Wallerstein, Emmanuel Wallerstein and his world systems theory, because he talks of um, capitalism, 1500, that's the uh, cutoff year for him, mm -hmm. uh, and the creation of uh, capitalist accumulation and the world system theory. Mm -hmm. But um, this professor called Janet uh, Abu Lugod, mm -hmm. uh, she says, no, the world system starts actually before, from 1250, it's in fact called Before European Hegemony, her book. And uh, it starts from 1250 to 1350, and she shows the interactions, political, economic, cultural, that is happening between three cores that she lays out, that is Europe, um, what she calls the Middle East, and the Far East. So what and happened after that, Rashmi? Yeah, I think, so the, I think uh, the, role, the role played by Eurasia is kind of, sure, it's kind of self-evident now that you talk about I it. I think if we look at history on a world scale, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a historian, nor am I an economist. or So I c really cannot explain it. But it fascinates me uh, that if we look at it on a world scale... What keeps a culture uh, thriving? Yeah, if we look at it, I think there are moments of ascent and then there are moments of descent. And it is wrong to make only, uh, say... Europe, uh, as I said, the master uh, hero of all narratives, because there is so much happening here. There is so much feeding into uh, the European Renaissance. But we are also living in this and time. 200 years later, the narrative might be something else. Shireen. Absolutely. Uh, Rashmi, I just feel a little, I don't know what Vivek would say, a little reluctant about bashing the European mind too much because I don't want it to look like our inferiority complex. So let us put the emphasis on a different sphere of activity. Uh -huh. 
But it's not the bashing because yeah. we're trying to actually Whatever. take it to... No. It will become no, like this no, no, in the hands no, no. of us. No, no, it's not a bashing at all. I'm it's just not saying that something no. flowers here yes. and then something flowers here, something may flower elsewhere. No, no, but we look at it in a world perspective without focusing on one kind of narrative. That's all I'm saying. I'm but not we saying need to get, that... We need yeah. to, now, uh, how do we bring in the no, other kind no, of we narrative? We need to bring the other... But before that, too, even the point that Lashmi made quite vividly, that w given the fact that there were very diverse models, if you like, that you see in history, despite that what seems to have, if you like, won out is this one model where sovereignty, ethnicity, and territory came together, right? That's only one model that we inherit. That's very from, Right, yeah. Mm. But, and that is what creates problem too. I mean, you know, we know here in India that why it creates problem. And you know why uh, in Soviet Union, it's all the so-called satellite countries. You know, it's as though earlier there was, we didn't even know what these ethnicities were. Right. After the breakup, what we see is that, you know, sociologists and anthropologists started talking about primordial, primordial assertion of identity, right? you know, in a bizarre sort of way. But it is not nothing primordial about that. It was simply that the model that was, they were trying to be sort of made to fit in was breaking apart. Whether it, in, whether it took the form of Soviet Union or whether in India it took the form of uh, Let me ask you this, Vivek. Is dissent, and you know, I think uh, Rashmi used the word dissent, is dissent inevitable for any culture? Well, if it is a thriving culture, dissent has to be a vital part of the culture, right? Yes. Uh, uh, in any culture, that's it. Uh, why, why, why did the Mesopotamian civilization or all of those cultures... Just peter out gradually. Um, Do you see a pattern, Shireen? Um, I think uh, you see uh, it is fascinating uh, because their centers of worship gradually go. Uh -huh. And uh, they get conquered by first the Achaemenids, then Alexander's successors. And then gradually... There is no one to feed the gods in their temples. There is no one to continue the mathematical traditions in the temples of observing the skies. And are these... To teach in the schools. Sure. It was all, a lot of it was temple-based. And once your temple goes, it goes. In Egypt, it's very similar. The Greeks come. Then the Romans. When the Greeks come... They make Greek the official language. The Ptolemies speak and administer in Greek. They only Cleopatra could speak Egyptian. Mm. So ordinary Egyptians who were so cultured had no place in administrative life. Mm. And then the lives of their uh, temples started fizzling out. And then you have the Western mind telling you, and here I'm doing it Sorry. myself. You're allowed that some it is, Yeah, <laughs> that it was the Arabs who destroyed Egyptian civilization. <laughs> and I have to get up and shout and say, no, it was Christianity. And if you look at the Coptic Christianity in Egypt, it has a lot of features which Egyptian religion had, including the cross. Sure. Why don't we spend the last few minutes just wondering about the more theoretical question of how difficult it is to understand another culture now, just purely as a thought experiment, if we were to come in contact with the alien life, how difficult or easy is it going to be to understand them? 
understand them? It's going to be extremely difficult. First Why? Of, well, first of I mean, all, we, we have the experience of, of two thousand, three thousand, four thousand <laughs> years of coming in contact with sure. each other. Obviously, we're all human. But you know, beings. there is this famous phrase that uh, famous remark of Wittgenstein's in his philosophical investigation: "Lion were to speak, we won't understand it." <laughs> You know, what yeah. it means is that you need a form. You need to understand the form of life first. So, if an alien encountered and we have no idea what the form of life of alien, we won't understand it. So, so. Uh, so, how do we understand the lion? We won't understand the lion. That's we won't. You, yeah, unless we understand the form of life of, of the lion. <laughs> that is if the so, li- would you say that there are forms of life that cannot be understood? No, you can't say that. That would be practically saying that that is not a form of life. Uh huh. Yeah. It's, it's in some sense, you know, it's, it's like, it's the whole problem of relativism, right? Uh, that is, people wanted to say that, you know, there may be something which is incommensurable, right? That, you know, so maybe, but unless what you say is language, I cannot even understand you, right? So in order for me to understand private you, language, yeah, it, it has to be yeah, mm. understandable. The imp- mm. Private language is impossible. Mm. That's, that is Wittgenstein's argument, mm. you know. Uh, mm. Rush me. What is your take on it? Well, 2,000 years out, aliens land on the planet. How do we understand them? How do we use all of your knowledge to uh, get well, them to know I'm, them better? You know, I'm, my basic specialization is literature, so I can really only talk of uh, sure. uh, science fiction, maybe. Uh-huh. And here, too, I would um, go to the socialist science fiction, the sort of science fiction written in socialist countries, which really has addressed this question uh, very philosophically, the, the place of man in this great universe, and what will happen when man meets uh, beings that are beyond the framework of his uh, toolkit of understanding. And uh, here we have, of course, uh, the great Polish writer Stanislaw Lem. And um, I mean, I can just refer to two of his stories. Uh, one is, of course, the well-known Solaris, yeah. uh, which is the encounter of mankind with uh, a, a planet which is covered with brain matter. Yeah. And and um, so that's a kind of A very different that, kind yeah, of life form. Which does not mm. need to go anywhere, produce, distribute, trade. It doesn't need to do anything. It just intuits. Um, and, and the whole uh, encounter with that. And, uh, you know, again, how a a dialogical relationship can be set up. And of course, Tarkovsky uh, elaborates that uh, core idea of uh, Lem's very, very beautifully in his uh, adaptation. And of course, the other uh, thing of the temporal temporal disjunctions that will happen. So if you have cosmonauts going out, you know, he has this wonderful story called The Return. Uh Um, You see, the cosmonaut would have lived only 10 years. So he has biologically aged only 10 years. But when he comes back to Earth, Several uh, generations have passed by, and the Earth. He so that's again a multicultural moment in a way, yeah. uh, because he's coming to an Earth that he doesn't recognize or know how to deal with, or even how to behave in, because even behavior pa- patterns have changed. Um, and then, of course, the third uh, story I'd really like to recall here is um, Roadside Picnic, which was again made into a s- film by Tarkovsky, a stalker, uh, where you have something landing on. Earth, it's a meteorite or a comet. So we are the and host you culture. Have, mm. Yeah, and but what has taken over is pristine nature. It's a nature that is so pristine that it's scary. And, and con- contrasting with that nature is a very, very de- decrepit uh, urban modern life. Uh, very decrepit, uh, uh, you know, modernity in a sense. Um, and how nature starts to scare you in a way. Um, so these are some. And, and finally, of course, the That's great Kyrgyz writer called Etmatov. Um, 
and he uh, wrote a uh, novel called Mark of Cassandra after the fall of the Soviet Union. He was a very great uh, Soviet writer. Uh, and he uh, talks of this uh, um, a cosmonaut who goes into the um, who goes into space and then refuses to come back to Earth because Soviet Union is no more. So in a sense, his home <laughs> is no more. So he says, I'm not coming back. And in fact, he, I would say, is one of the first suicides in space who does not want to be buried back in Earth. Uh, wow. Because most of the suicides, if you have, if you think of Gibarian in Solaris, he said he commits suicide, but he says, "I want to be buried on Earth." That's uh, right. But this man say, just walks out of the space station, and he's like a mummy floating forever there. Um, and and but so he doesn't just want to come back That's to Earth. That's a nice dystopian image of, to have. Yeah, absolute <laughs> dystopia. And uh, so these are some of the probable, you know, cultural encounters that can happen. Um, Shireen, I know it's not your territory so much, but we we try to visualize the. What would happen if, if we were to come in contact with aliens? How difficult or easy? I think a lot would depend on our morality, our culture, our system of ethics. So it's up to us. Do we have a basic respect for difference? And how would we teach our children that? We still don't know how to address Northeastern people with respect. <laughs> It's and the difference that how, scares how even one, archaeologists. How does one teach that, Shireen? By just coming in contact with more cultures? Is it is it? I think welcoming a girl with chini eyes in your class and asking her where she's from to bring some pictures from home to ask her where is Naga land and make gradual little bit-by-bit bit movements towards it. What's the future, Shireen? What's the future of... How cultures coexist? Do you feel optimistic about no, where we're I likely don't. to be? No, I think we are all going to become Gujarati banyas. <laughs> <laughs> Thousand years out. Yeah. <laughs> What's the future, Vivek? Maybe like a Gandhi, you know? <laughs> that would be oh, a good model wonderful! Of that would be just. I think that's 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 an interesting model. What's if the you future? go around 180 degrees. Well, I'm optimistic. I think I think uh, we'll figure it out. What's the reason for that optimism? Because, as I said, uh, we will tap into our own resources and begin to understand some of the problems better. And that, uh, you know, and I do think that. Do you think of multiculturalism as a virtue, as a good? I thing? don't like the phrase because that you know the sense in which multiculturalism is we we now talk about it's really a West trying to come to terms with its own past its own colonizing past. That is multiculturalism. But if you want to talk about genuine difference, living with difference... What would that, you call that? Yeah, that... It doesn't need to be called anything. It doesn't anything. need to be called anything. That's, sure. You know, that's... We have... We had that, or, you know, I hope we still have that. So to tap into that and to begin to... You know, the idea of alternative theorization is not, not just for alternative theorization's sake, right? You want to be able to live better, right? Yes. So hopefully the insight that you generate now uh, would uh, enable you to do that instead of simply borrowing a model you thought that would work. And what would that one core insight be? What that one core insight would be? That uh, for us... For all, of us, for all of us on the planet. For knowledge and uh, 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 happiness are linked together. Knowledge and happiness are linked together. That's interesting. Rashmi, over to you and we'll end well, with you. We just have a few minutes Akbar to go. Akbar and Suli Kool.
and uh, <laughs> well, our, our model, which is that of uh, unity in diversity. But also, I think, uh, again, to finish with, uh, to go back to Bakhtin, um, you know, the need for evaluative positions that you, you see, you can only know the other from uh, an evaluative position, uh -huh. uh, which is um, compassionate, compassionate towards the other. Um, and this was what uh, I think even Derrida is showing in his, uh, you know, his essays, his great essays on hospitality. Um, and, and, hospitality. And that we welcome, you know. In fact, Derrida, who, who's such a complex writer with so many complex uh, uh, theories and concepts, he uses this homely word, hospitality, that right. you welcome, you know, when he... In, so if uh, aliens to were to Levinas, land on the planet, says, we should welcome, you welcome them. the other. You welcome the other without thematization. That is, you don't ask for identity documents, you know, but you welcome him, you look at his face, you listen to him, and you welcome the other. So I think this is uh, what uh, is uh, really the hope that, uh, you know, that you allow the other to cross, cross the threshold, you have an evaluative position, you have compassion. I think this is it. Great. I think that's a great note to end this on. Thank you so much to all of you for making it. Thank and you. we look forward to having you soon again. Take care. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. Thank you for having us.